I don't want anyone to, to think that I'm against the harm reduction potential of these devices for adults. But 3% of adults are using these devices. 20% of high schoolers are using these devices. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams wading into the growing debate over e-cigarettes and teen use. The Surgeon General on Tuesday issued an advisory about his concerns that teenagers and youth are using e-cigarettes. It's an unusual move, and you will hear from the Surgeon General himself in an exclusive conversation here on Politico Pulse Check in a moment. Now, that was not the only healthcare news in the past few days. There was a ruling out of Texas on the Affordable Care Act, putting the entire law at risk. That ruling came on Friday night. We are planning on taking a closer look at the ruling and Democrats' response later this week on this podcast. So keep your eyes peeled and your ears open for that conversation. Just a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, you can help us keep it going. You can help us by rating or reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app, you can help me selfishly write to me. I'm at ddiamondapolitico.com with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next. We're kicking around an episode near the end of the year that would be a book club for Pulse Check listeners. And with that, here's my conversation with Surgeon General Jerome Adams. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Dan. You are issuing a Surgeon General's advisory on e-cigarettes. And meanwhile, the NIH just released survey data of their own that teen reports of vaping have essentially doubled in a year. And meanwhile, over at FDA, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is cracking down on vaping, too. Is this something that all of you came to individually, or is there a Trump administration push on vaping? Well, uh, we're recognizing this as an epidemic. Uh, We saw from the data that came out today that for the first time in over 40 years, we've seen uh, doubling in youth use of a substance at a time when tobacco use is stable, at a time when alcohol use is stable, and at a time when opioid misuse is actually going down. We've seen a doubling of youth use of of these e-cigarette devices, a 78% increase and young people using these devices, according to the November-released uh, uh, NYTS data. And now we're up over 20% exactly. of kids who have reported vaping. And, and let me put that into perspective for you. Uh, I don't want anyone to, to think that I'm against the harm reduction potential of these devices for adults. But 3% of adults are using these devices. 20% of high schoolers are using these devices. of middle schoolers, and I have two young kids myself in middle school, 5% of middle schoolers are using these e-cigarette devices. A higher percentage of middle schoolers are using them than adults. There truly is an epidemic here. uh, Youth are being exposed to nicotine, which is uniquely, uniquely harmful to the developing brain. And that's something that, that most folks don't realize either, that nicotine is uniquely harmful to the developing brain. It can affect learning, attention, memory, and it can prime the brain for addiction to other substances. And just to underline the point, the target audience of adult smokers switching over is not where the inroads are being made at the same level as among teens, as among kids. The vaping industry has proposed putting the onus of responsibility 
on kids, on parents, on others, sort of like the same way that the alcohol industry has shifted responsibility there. Does that make sense to you, doctor? Well, what makes sense to me is what makes sense uh, for any public health intervention. It's got to be an all-hands-on-deck approach. So Dr. Gottlieb at FDA is working on the regulatory side. At the CDC, our partners are doing surveillance work. At NIH and NIDA, folks are, are, are pushing for more research. In the Office of the Surgeon General, we're pushing to raise awareness, but we can't do it alone. We know that at the state and local level, they have more control over retailing. They have more control over clean air policies. And it's important that folks know that these e-cigarette devices are not included universally in clean air policies that are being passed. And yes, obviously, and of course, we want to make sure parents, teachers, Doctors, such as pediatricians, are aware of this epidemic rise, are aware that nicotine is dangerous, are aware that a large proportion of young people have actually been exposed to marijuana through these devices and that they have a role to play in addition to the state and the federal response. You mentioned your kids in middle school who are certainly aware of of vaping and the prevalence in their age bracket. Have you ever seen a jewel brought to your house? Your kids don't jewel, I'm guessing. Uh, my kids don't jewel. Uh, I'm knocking on wood here. Um, my, I'm fairly certain my kids don't jewel. But uh, yes, actually, my, uh, my middle schooler rode his bike to his elementary school just last year and brought home a jewel pod and asked, Dad, what is this? It was, at, it was in, the, in the playground at his school. Uh, my nine, nine-year-old, actually knows what jeweling is. Kids are being exposed to these products through their, their, their games that they play, through YouTube, and at school where, in many cases, the bathroom is now referred to as the jeweling room. I bought one of those devices from a 7-Eleven, and I was struck by just how cool it looks. It does look like a very flashy flash drive, for lack of repeating, repeating the words. There has been a push. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has talked about this, raising the age of jeweling to age 21. Is that something you would support? Tobacco 21 is an evidence-based policy that many folks have supported across the country. Again, we know that nicotine can affect the developing brain, and the brain continues to develop all the way through age 25. So I think it's appropriate that we explore uh, the, the feasibility of tobacco 21 policies across the country and that we include all nicotine-containing products in those Tobacco 21 laws when we're having that discussion. I want to go back to your advisory. You're the Surgeon General. You're the most important doctor in the country, or at least you have the biggest bully pulpit. You can focus on lots of different issues. You've picked this one. In your advisory, which is the third advisory that this— In 13 years, yes. So this, this, this is rare, third in 13 years. You talk about the possible health risks of e-cigarettes around uh, aerosols and nicotine. You've mentioned the nicotine risk of addiction. What what else do we need to know from a health standpoint about e-cigarettes? What are the risks that you see? Well, uh, again, uh, these new products that are out there, such as Juul, which is 75% of the e-cigarettes sold uh, at retail. And, and I say that specifically because I'm not picking on Juul, but the fact is they are 75% of the e-cigarettes that are sold. They've become a synonym. It's like Kleenex and tissue. Exactly. Exactly. They're, they're a verb, jeweling. Uh, uh, and, and, and again, it's important that we recognize things for what they are. But, but they deliver nicotine in a way that is both more appealing to young people 
and less irritating. Uh, they use uh, nicotine salt form of, of, uh, of nicotine that is less harmful so you can deliver more nicotine per hit. And that is what makes these products unique and different from many of the older products and what makes them particularly dangerous in terms of uh, creating dependency in individuals. Usually in public health, we're late to the game. And when you look at this epidemic rise in youth, use among uh, youth, we're, we're late again, but we're trying to intervene before it's too late. We want to catch this thing and hopefully stop the increase and rise and hopefully turn it around so that we don't have a new generation of young people addicted to nicotine. It's interesting you say that, the idea that we're trying to be proactive as a federal government in intervening before there is a wave of adult smokers because of the Juul devices. We don't know how many kids have died from juuling. There, there may be no kids who have died from juuling. Well, we certainly know that poisonings have gone up. Uh, the poison control centers say that one of the number one reasons they're getting calls now is because kids are being exposed to uh, high levels of nicotine through these products. And again, I'm not saying that juul is causing an epidemic of deaths. So you're right. We don't know what we, uh, what we don't know at this point. But we do know for certain that for young people, learning, attention, memory, and predisposition for future addiction all can, uh, can, can happen when young people use these products. We know they can be exposed to other dangerous substances, including marijuana. And we know that with the epidemic rise in a harmful substance exposure, that it's appropriate for us to act. Shifting gears somewhat, we have this major cross-governmental response on vaping. You just mentioned there are things that we don't know. There is something we do know, which is that there are tens of thousands of people every year who die because of gun violence. This is something you actually tweeted, or at least whoever was manning your Twitter account tweeted at me recently, a link to the data. Do you find it harder to move to issue statements on something like gun violence, given the politics around that issue? Well, uh, here's an interesting thing about gun violence. And I've been all over the country. We know that in, in, in many communities across America, the availability of guns is a constant threat. Uh, drove through downtown Baltimore just last week. And to a young person walking through downtown Baltimore who may not have a father or a mother who's scared to walk to the playground or to the, to the grocery store because they're scared of getting shot, uh, the availability of guns is certainly, certainly a threat to their physical and their mental health. We also know that when you go to, to Arkansas or Alabama, where I've been, and you ask folks about guns, they'll tell you, I'm going out hunting with my family this weekend. Guns are, are family time. They're bonding. And so it's really difficult on a national level to come up with policies that balance both the, the resilience that access to guns can provide in a community setting in rural America with the dangers that guns uh, truly are in urban settings or in other settings. And it's why I really promote folks to have a local conversation about these issues. And, uh, and as Surgeon General, I really, I'm really proud of the work CDC has done to push out data about the issue so that folks can have a conversation. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is, is have that conversation about what trauma is across the board um, and, and ways we can build resilience. As the nation's top doctor, did you notice the conversation that doctors had on social media pushing back against NRA recently? Uh, I absolutely noticed that conversation. And what did you think of it? And well, as, as I'm proud of, of doctors 
for being willing to speak up for what they believed in. I think doctors need to, to do that more. I think they need to step out of their operating room, out of their clinic, and be willing to be voices out in the community. And I will tell you that as a physician, I think it is very appropriate for physicians to have conversations with their patients about risk that they feel uh, are, are impactful in, in their lives. You spoke recently about research into marijuana. Uh, the quote I have is, quote, one of the concerns that I have with marijuana is the difficulty that the folks have to do research on it because of the scheduling system. Do you believe that? I believe that we need to continue to make it as easy as possible for academic, a- academicians to, to study the, the benefits and the risks of marijuana and all its components. Let's be clear. Uh, there's no such thing as medical marijuana any more than there's a such thing as medical poppy. There are over 100 different components in marijuana, and we need to to look at it the way we look at the development of any other drug. We need to look at uh, which components have a beneficial effect for which patients and which diseases and where there are potentially detrimental effects. And we want to make sure we're giving people a product that we can say with certainty is a, is a, is a net positive for this individual. And, and to do that, we need to be able to do research. And so I'm certainly not in favor of legalizing marijuana, of, 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 of rescheduling it, uh, but I do want to make sure we can do research so that policy decisions are evidence-based. Getting back to your bully pulpit and how you are spending your time, doctor, opioids, addiction, numerous different issues that are facing American healthcare. You and I have talked before about issues inside downtown urban areas and, and how there should be a change in how we approach those health challenges. How are you looking at 2019 for your priorities? Uh, 2019, we're really leaning into my Community Health and Economic Prosperity Initiative, uh, which is really designed to engage local policymakers and businesses to invest in community health. We want folks to understand that healthier communities are not just uh, better in terms of, of health outcomes, but they are able to attract a healthier and more talented workforce, that they see higher wages, that they, uh, that they have less absenteeism, greater productivity, less workplace accidents. And if you want more money in your wallet, more money in your 401k, more money uh, that, that your local businesses are making and in your communities and your tax coffers, then you need to pay attention to the health in your community and the predictors of both negative and positive health in those communities. And I think it dovetails perfectly with our opioid work because folks are acutely attuned to how the opioid epidemic has impacted their community and their ability to be prosperous. So when you talk about that community health initiative, and you and I have had a conversation about this before, what does that practically mean? Does that mean you will be out there speaking on this issue? Will there be money flowing into new programs that are targeted on community health? That's a great question. And uh, uh, just last week, I was at the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta, a partnership between the Office of the Surgeon General and, and the Federal Reserve, uh, unheard of before. Uh, but they're seeing this too. They're seeing that, that America's poor health is literally a threat to our future prosperity and our ability to continue to grow. So it's really looking at evidence-based practices such as the SPARK initiative in San Francisco, such as purpose-built communities, such as Blue Zones. And I'm just shooting this out as a teaser for folks. They can go to YouTube or, or online and look up all of these initiatives. But they're examples of Blue public- Zone is the, like with the Dan Butner. Yes. Yeah, the, the local communities that have longer lifespans and healthy outcomes and trying to 
figure out the secrets of those communities and export them around the country. Exactly. And, and they're all great examples of public and public-private partnerships where folks have invested in building healthy communities, but seen returns, not just in health metrics, but again, in economic metrics and community growth and, and happiness. Uh, uh, for for individuals. The Blue Zones, I remember that because I was in this tiny town in, in uh, Minnesota, Albert Lee, yes. that had a Blue Zone sign up. And I was running around the lake at, you know, whatever December 40 degree weather and thinking, God, this if this is the secret to being healthy, I guess, like you're you know, running in the cold. Um, but well, I know. You, I'm, I'm proud of you, Dan. I'm proud of you to, to hear about that and getting out in the cold weather and getting it in. That's the best thing a doctor has said to me in a long time. <laughs> They're usually pretty frustrated with my lifestyle as a Politico reporter, but I will take that, <laughs> that the Surgeon General just endorsed me running in the cold in Minnesota. <laughs> is, there, is there something, doctor, that you've seen elsewhere in, in another country, in, in a different health system that you wish we could take and, and implement here? Uh, well, uh, again, going back to our, our whole uh, Community Health and Economic Prosperity or CHEP initiative, we know that the U.S. spends more on health care than any other country by far, but we don't achieve the same outcomes uh, as comparable countries do. But when you actually include all the things that we know account for health, in that equation. We know that other countries spend similar amounts, but they're investing in preventative measures. They're investing in complete streets. They're investing in transportation. They're investing in food security. We know that only 20% max, some people say as little as 10% of health is actually health care, but we focus 99% of our attention and our funding on 10 to 20% of the problem. What I would like folks to realize is that they will achieve a much greater ROI, whatever their, their, their priority is. You can't invest in, in, in safety. You can't invest in jobs. You can't invest in infrastructure. You can't invest in education with one-fifth of our GDP going towards health care, which we know, again, is running on the hamster wheel and eventually falling off and going backwards. There have been many points where the Trump administration, the Obama administration, have been scrutinized for differing. This is one where there has been a through line. Karen DeSalvo, who served as the acting assistant secretary for health, a big believer in investing in public health. It's a message that you and others in the Trump administration have carried on. In our, our last few minutes together, I actually wanted to take the conversation to a, a lighter place. You're the nation's top doctor. Doctor TV shows, doctor movies, they are, are replete. <laughs> do, do you find yourself watching fictional depictions of, of medicine and, and just scrutinizing everything, or can you allow yourself to enjoy it? Uh, you know, I, I literally can't watch uh, any of those shows because I'm an anesthesiologist. And one of the places where they most frequently get it horribly wrong is in the operating room setting. They've got uh, someone there with a, with a breathing tube, half hanging out the wrong way, and, uh, and, and uh, the pa- patient's eyes are wide open. They're in the operating room without mask on. And, and it's just so far away from reality that I can't enjoy it. I probably shouldn't endorse any particular shows, but uh, uh, the, the one TV show that I actually watch is The Simpsons. I tape it and, and watch it when I'm running on the treadmill, uh, even though I want, I want folks to know that I do not endorse Dr. Nick or any of his actions, uh, but I do enjoy What about watching. Dr. Hibbert? Dr. Hibbert, the family doctor. Yes, uh, well, well, you know, it, I'll be honest He's with very you. jolly. He, Happy he's man. very jolly, and it was nice to see a person of color portrayed as a doctor uh, on, a, on a TV show. So uh, I'd say I'm a Dr. Hibbert fan. 
Secretary Azar was asked about his TV shows last week, and he joked that once he revealed them, people would be buying ads trying to win over uh, his favor. I, I look forward to the drug ads that are going to start appearing on, on Simpsons TV show. Um, last question. When I interviewed your predecessor, actually sitting in this office, uh, I asked him, again, nation's top doctor, did he have any health vices? And for him, it was dessert. He loved dessert. Are there any health vices that you would like to cop to? Uh, that is a, a great question. My uh, mother is uh, from Southern Maryland, and people debate about Southern Maryland, but the Mason-Dixon line runs through it, and, and uh, I consider that the South. And, uh, oh, my gosh, she makes some side dishes that are just amazing. My mother can take a vegetable and turn it into the most unhealthy thing you will ever consume in your life. Her sweet potato souffle is, is, is out of this world. Um, her her uh, her spinach. She can take spinach, and and turn it into cream spinach that you wouldn't even recognize. But it is just so delicious. And so I'd say my biggest health vice is my mother's cooking. Well, we will aim to see what what comes of you in 2019. I hope you'll come back and we'll have a longer conversation soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about some of America's health problems. Uh, you know, it, it's tough. If these if these were easy. Uh, uh, things to talk about with easy solutions, we'd have it solved. But my motto is better health through better partnerships. And the more that we can bring different folks to the table, the more that we can bring folks across the aisle, uh, the, the more that we can really put our own beliefs uh, uh, or, or biases to the side, not our beliefs, but our biases to the side, and just talk through some of these things. Uh, and I've seen this play out across the country and then the healthier our society becomes and the more prosperous it becomes. So thank you. We'll leave it there. Dr. Adams, thank you for joining Politico Pulse Check. So one of my questions coming out of the conversation with the Surgeon General was how big a deal is this really? What does an advisory on e-cigarettes mean for public health? To understand, I grab my colleague, Sarah Overmall, who's tracked this as close as anybody. She covers e-cigarettes for Politico. I'm joined now by my friend and colleague. How are you, Sarah? Great, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And at this point, you, just like our listeners, have heard the interview with Surgeon General Adams. Was there anything that jumped out to you? How big a deal is it that the Surgeon General is weighing in on e-cigarettes? Well... For the Surgeon General, it's significant because it's the fourth time in 13 years that he has issued an advisory. Um, others were on alcohol use in pregnancy and radon, so this is pretty significant for his role. In the grand scheme of e-cigarettes, I would not rank this as high as some of the other moves that have been made because, of course, the FDA actually put out an action plan last month that had real steps in it to hopefully, in their, in their view, limit teen use. The Surgeon General's advisory is more about having conversations and an awareness campaign. Right. And an FDA action plan, an actual FDA crackdown, is more than whatever the Surgeon General is going to be saying in his bully pulpit role. Right. And I mean, that bully pulpit role is significant, especially because the vapor industry is already feeling a lot of pressure. But the FDA has the power to really further regulate them. So they're keeping their eye on that agency right now. Uh, this is more about the types of conversations that parents and kids and teachers should be having rather than how the vapor industry needs to be regulating itself. So the advisory is truly that. It's advice. It is not requiring that teachers, that doctors do something different. 
No, it's not requiring. But um, I mean, and even if if we're going to get technical, the FDA isn't necessarily requiring that vapor companies, you know, pull their products, but it's in everybody's best interest to do so. It's it's trying to move where we are as, as a country. Right. One thing that came up in the conversation with Dr. Adams is the Trump administration and where it comes down on healthcare issues. We're coming off a very controversial weekend in healthcare. The judge who struck down the Affordable Care Act with the Trump administration not doing a lot to defend the ACA in front of that court. But on something like e-cigarettes, this is something that, at least from my perspective, there have been more Democrats, more health advocates behind. Is that right, Sarah? Is this something where there might be bipartisan consensus? Definitely there is, especially among Democrats, and it puts them in the funny position of backing, of course, a Trump administration official, but I don't even think they necessarily mind that. Gottlieb has done a lot on this that they support. There are a few Republicans that are wary of this, and from the people I've talked to, um, again, in the e-cig and, and vapor industry, they don't exactly want to come out and say they they don't want the FDA to be aggressive on e-cigarettes because it's obviously a teen issue. They don't want to be framed like they aren't don't have concern for that. But though the Republicans that have shown wariness about uh, tobacco regulation are the ones that you would look to and say they also are kind of sounding the alarms, wondering if the FDA is taking a step too far. And this is a bigger proxy battle over tobacco. Right. And it wasn't helped by the fact that Gottlieb last month when he released the plan, lumped it together with regulations on traditional cigarettes and cigars. So you are the reporter for Politico, tracking e-cigarettes, tracking smoking trends more broadly. Is there anything else that you are looking at now, any other shoe to drop from the federal government? Definitely. They've they've put out um, advanced notices of proposed rules on flavored cigars and menthol and mint cigarettes. And that relates to e-cigarettes in that the FDA sees it as the first step they have to take before they take more uh, steps on regulating flavors in e-cigarettes. Also, uh, Commissioner Gottlieb left plenty of room in his action plan last month for taking more steps if teen use isn't actually curbed. And then on Monday, NIH released a survey of teens where they reported that recent recent vaping nearly doubled in the last year. And um, as we just heard Dr. Adams say, that's the first time in 40 years that substance use across the board has doubled. And so that's significant in itself. It's obviously early days for the FDA plan, but it shows that teen use is still very much a problem. Listeners can find more of Sarah Overmall's coverage in Politico, specifically Prescription Pulse, the spinoff from Pulse that focuses on FDA, pharmaceuticals, and e-cigarettes. Thank you for joining Pulse Check again, Sarah. Thank you for having me. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Surgeon General Jerome Adams and his whole team, especially Kate, for making time and space for a conversation. And my colleagues, Sarah Overmall, ace reporter, and Mikaela Rodriguez, excellent producer, for producing and making the show. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com. You can find Pulse Check and all of your favorite podcast players. Just search for Politico's Pulse Check. And you can find a new episode of this show in your podcast player very soon.